Lord, we ask you to bless this time that we get into your word and we study and we purpose to understand and we study to show ourselves approved unto you so that we can know uh, who you are, God, that we would have a, a better understanding of who the God is that we worship, uh, Lord, and, and what you would desire uh, from us and how we ought to live. Lord, so I pray that you would speak to us profoundly, that your spirit would work in my heart, in all the hearts of the people that are here today, that um, this wouldn't just be uh, a message that we hear and we walk away from, but we would recognize the living God is trying to get something across to us personally and powerfully. So please allow your word to do what it was meant to do and change us from the inside out. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Uh, so if you recall, the beginning of Acts chapter 9, we see probably the most, at least one of the most significant transformations in all of history, not just the Bible. It's Saul of Tarsus. Remember, after Stephen was stoned, he watched that, consented to the death of Stephen, meaning he had some level of authority there. He went on a rampage, right? He started persecuting Christians, dragging them out of their houses, putting them in prison. All these horrific things Saul of Tarsus was doing. And he was doing these things thinking that he was giving God glory, thinking that he was doing something that brought honor to the Lord. Well, the Lord basically had enough, right? On Saul's way to Damascus, on the road to Damascus, as he was going there to persecute Christians, Jesus just blindsided him, literally. He, he caught him off guard. He came there. He had appeared as this glorious light. He had this encounter with Saul of Tarsus, and then Saul recognized who Jesus Christ actually was. And we see Saul of Tarsus experience this radical transformation. Where we got to verse 19 last week. We'll continue from verses 20 to 43 this week. Because we're not quite done with Saul's transformation. See, there are going to be some other things that Saul of Tarsus does. We'll understand his life a little better as we look at Acts and some of the other epistles that he wrote. But this text is primarily still focusing on the transformation that Saul experienced. But we're also going to take a look at Peter and see some of the miracles that he was able to perform by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's going to um, he's going to heal a crippled man, a paralytic, and then he's literally going to bring a woman back to life. The title of this teaching, Transformed and Made Alive. Transformed and Made Alive. When the Spirit of God comes into our life, not only does He transform us, He makes us alive. Jesus didn't just come to make sick people well. He came to make dead people alive, to literally wake us up to the reality of who He is and what our purpose is here on this earth. We'll understand this a little deeper as we dive into our text. Acts chapter 9, verse 20. Immediately He, speaking of Saul of Tarsus, immediately He preached the Christ in the synagogues, that he is the son of God. What did Saul do as finally, as the scales came off of his eyes, he preached Jesus. Now, in the synagogues during that time period, basically anybody that was uh, had any type of skill in teaching could teach in the synagogue. It wasn't always just one person speaking. We remember Jesus would go into the synagogues and teach. It was basically open. Okay, if you can teach, then come up here and teach. Very different than how we do service today. So they allow Saul of Tarsus to teach, but I'm willing to bet that they didn't realize what he's going to be 
preaching on, right? He starts telling about Jesus. This is a synagogue that worships Judaism. He's telling them that Jesus is the fulfillment of the religion that you practice. Now this truth is a truth that we should hold to as well. If we've truly experienced transformation through the Spirit of the living God, we should talk about it. We should talk about Him. Immediately He preached. It doesn't say He went to seminary for this long period of time and then He went to preach. It doesn't say He had full understanding of what God did in His life. He knew what? That Jesus is the Christ. That He redirected me. That He gave me a new life. We don't know exactly what Paul preached but he preached. And look what he preached. We know at least one thing. He said that he is the Son of God. This is the only time that we see Jesus referred to as the Son of God in the book of Acts. But this is significant. And I know many people uh, nowadays, they take this the wrong way. They take this title to mean that Jesus was less than God. But that's actually the opposite of what that title means in that culture. And still today, the Son of God means that Jesus is equal to God. Let me show you. It's John chapter 5. John chapter 5. Jesus is ruffling feathers with the scribes and Pharisees. And it says in John chapter 5, verse 17, But Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because not only because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. That's what that reference son of God means. He's not any less than God that God the father is. He is fully God, also fully man. So this was probably astounding to these Jews that were sitting in the center. They're saying that Jesus was God. That's exactly what he's saying. Now, if Jesus wasn't God, this would be blasphemy on Paul's part. But because he is the Son of God, and he is God in the flesh, he's just speaking truth. It says in Acts chapter 9, verse 21, Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? Isn't this the guy that came here to persecute the people that are calling on the name of Jesus? It says they were amazed. They were amazed at the transforming work that God did in Saul of Tarsus. First to five points. Your transformation should amaze others. Your transformation should amaze others. That's the reality of the transforming work of Jesus Christ. It should lead others to this place of awe and wonder. Oh my gosh, look at what God did in that life. Isn't this, this person, isn't this Saul of Tarsus, the one that persecuted Christians? Isn't this this guy that used to use drugs? Isn't it this lady that, that used to get around? That's the same person? No, it's, it's, it's not the same person. It isn't, it isn't. God made him a new creation. They're a different individual than they were in the past. This is the type of transforming work God desires to do in each and every one of us. Now, I understand not all of us have experiences like Saul of Tarsus, right? Where we're persecuting Christians one day and the next day we're preaching about Jesus. But regardless, when we look at the Bible and what it speaks, when it speaks about transformation... 
There's a radical work that takes place in someone's life. And though we might not all have a testimony like Saul of Tarsus, the Lord still definitely wants to do a radical work in our life. He wants to change us. He wants to transform us. He doesn't want us to stay the same. Christians are called not to stay the same. They're called to a life of transformation. In Acts chapter 9, Verse 22, but Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving this Jesus is the Christ. He's growing. He increased more in strength. Why? Because he's in the center of God's will. He's doing what God is calling him to do. And he grows and we're doing what God has called us to do. And we're in the center of his will. Then transformation is going to take place. We're inevitably going to grow stronger and stronger in our relationship with the Lord. But it doesn't just say that he grew in strength. Look, I love this. At the end of verse 22, it says, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. How is Saul proving that Jesus is the Christ? With the words that he's saying and the life that, life that he's living. He's, he's living proof that Jesus is who he says he was. We too are living proof that Jesus is the Christ, that he truly is the Son of God. This is the second point. Transformed believers are walking proof of Jesus. Transformed believers are walking proof of Jesus. Each and every one of us that have truly been transformed by Jesus Christ are proof that he exists. Think about Saul of Tarsus. Historians, this is still an anomaly to them. How did this guy go from persecuting Christians to becoming a Christian? Okay, they can't explain it with logic. It doesn't make sense practically. Because it was a spiritual work. It was a supernatural thing that happened to Saul of Tarsus. And his transformation was proof that Jesus is legitimate, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God. But it's not just Saul who's living proof walking proof that Jesus is the Christ. We are too. Look at this. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul says to the church at Corinth, now this church had some issues going on, okay? He had to correct them a lot in the first epistle, okay? So these weren't angels by any means. And he says to them in verse 2, 2 Corinthians 3, 2, you are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly you are an epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the flesh. That is of the heart. It says you're written proof that Jesus is legitimate, that God exists, that the gospel is real. Each and every one of us. A written epistle, like you think about it. Like we look at the epistles and we study these things and we love these things and we memorize scripture and we purpose to grow in our relationship by studying the epistles. Bible says you're an epistle. We're epistles of Christ. We're evidence that Jesus is real. See, every single one of us has a unique story, a special story, and God wants to use our story to reach the masses. We're an epistle. Does that mean that everything that comes out of our mouth is perfect? No, that doesn't mean that. But the point is, God's writing a story with us. He's writing a story. He's using us to get some form of communication across to others as a written letter. He truly wants to use us to prove his existence. That's exactly what Saul did, proving that Jesus is the Christ. The text continues, Acts chapter 9, verse 23. Now after many days were passed, 
the Jews plotted to kill him. Okay, so this after many days isn't just a few days. It's actually three years. Okay, after many days, three years had passed. Let me show you. Paul fills in the gaps in Galatians chapter 1. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 16, he says, To reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. Not many days. It's quite a few days. Three years. Saul of Tarsus, he says, I didn't confer with flesh and blood. In other words, I wasn't having a man for a teacher. I didn't go to the apostles for them to share with me the gospel that they believe. I went to Jesus for him to explain to me the gospel that's true. What, what's the gospel? I don't want to get distracted by the fear of man and pleasing man. I want to know the truth, Jesus. Who are you? So for three years, you went to Arabia, then back to Damascus. And he just allowed the Holy Spirit to reveal to him the truth of Jesus Christ. He's probably looking a lot in the Old Testament, seeing uh, how Jesus fulfilled different things. Nevertheless, he got his message straight from the author and finisher of our faith. But it says, after these many days were passed and he came back, the Jews plotted to kill him. The people he was fighting with are now fighting against him. The persecuted persecutor actually became the persecuted. Like he was the persecutor. He was leading these masses of Jews to have Christians persecuted and enslaved and imprisoned and all these different things. But this was also something that Jesus promised would happen. It's point number three. Transformation invites persecution. Transformation invites persecution. This isn't a truth that we love to hear, but it's a truth that's true according to the scriptures. When we truly have experienced a transformed life and God has really got a hold of us through the blood of Jesus Christ, the world's going to hate us. For Saul, Jesus already promised him that this would happen specifically. If you look back one page in Acts chapter 9, verse 16, it says, For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my namesake. He's, I'm going to show Saul how many things he must suffer for my namesake. He's going to face persecution. And he's going to face persecution like no other apostle. All the apostles faced some level of persecution. They all were martyred except for John. But Saul had it like no one else. And he shows us this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. The different ways he suffered persecution. Now, kind of important to know, and we'll get there when we go through 2 Corinthians, but Paul's main point in writing 2 Corinthians, is to justify his apostleship. The church in Corinth, they had all these false teachers coming in there. They had these um, uh, false prophets, false apostles spreading this false doctrine. And uh, certain people began to question Paul's apostleship. So he writes this letter primarily, among many other reasons, uh, to let them know that he's a legit apostle. And he doesn't talk about how much God has blessed him. Okay, that's not his evidence. Look at what his evidence is. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24. From the Jews five times, I received 40 stripes minus one. 39 lashes. Every time they did something like that, it was meant to bring you as close to death as possible without dying. Okay, it happened five times to him. Three times, verse 25, 
I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been deep. I've been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Saul says, you know how I'm a legitimate apostle? Because Jesus said I was going to suffer and this is how I've suffered for the gospel. I'm not doing this to make a name for myself. I'm not doing this for my own selfish gain or ambition. No, I'm willing to lose everything, even my own life. Earlier on in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, verses 4 to 6, he says, But in all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God, in much patience and tribulations and needs and distresses and stripes and tumults and labors and sleeplessness and fastings. And he goes on saying this is what God's called me to. Remember Jesus said, as I mentioned, I'm going to show you how many things you must suffer for my name's sake. Paul knew he had the ministry of long suffering. And it began happening right off the bat, right when he starts preaching. Three years had passed, but they already want to kill him. See, Paul would go on later to say in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, the last book he wrote before he died, 2 Timothy 3.12, he tells Timothy, those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Those who truly are living for Jesus and are being transformed by Jesus, you're going to suffer some level of persecution. Does that mean that we're going to get whipped and shipwrecked and all these different things that Saul went through? Probably not. But there's a reality that Jesus says, if you love me, the world's going to hate you. Why? Because it hated him first. Don't be shocked when you're rejected. Don't be shocked when you're hated. Don't be shocked when you're persecuted. Jesus promised us that in this world we will have tribulation. Saul of Tarsus is no stranger to persecution. Look what happens. Acts chapter 9, verse 24. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall in a large basket. So we see this time the disciples are like, hey man, you're going to die if you stay here. We need to get you out of the city. So they let him go down a basket. Now this is significant for um, a number of reasons, but mainly it helps us date this event. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, I should have told you to keep your place there. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul talks about this in verse 32. He says, In Damascus, the governor under Eratos, the king, was guarding the city of the Damascenes with the garrison desiring to arrest me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. Now, this king Eratos, he only reigned for three years, okay, from 37 AD to 39 AD. So what does this tell us? Well, um, we subtract the three years that Saul was in Arabia, and we can pinpoint right around Saul um, was converted when he faced his, experienced his transformation, right? So if you minus it, it was sometime between 34 and 36 AD that Saul of Tarsus had that encounter with the Lord on the road to Damascus. Why is this significant? Well, that's not long after Jesus died. 
Okay, so this is very close to the time period that Jesus died and rose from the dead. This is important as Saul writes epistles and all these different things. He's able to encounter the same people that were living and doing life with Jesus. Acts chapter 9, verse 26. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. Three years have gone by and they're still in disbelief. Well, this guy's a legitimate disciple. I don't know. I don't know about this guy. He said they were afraid of him because of disbelief. Fear comes from disbelief. Fear comes from disbelief. Specifically, this was a relational fear. They didn't believe that God could do that work in Saul. They didn't believe that this man could actually be transformed. He was too bad to be transformed by the gospel. Like, I know I'm bad, but like, come on, Saul of Tarsus, really he could be transformed? They didn't believe in the work that God did in his life. So they were afraid. And we can fall into this too. I mean, probably a lot of them, they had families that were in prison, maybe uh, friends that were killed. We don't know for sure. But when someone burns us, when someone treats us poorly, it's easy for us to do what? To put up walls, right? Because we're afraid. We're afraid of what? We're afraid of being hurt again. See, the disciples, they were putting up walls against Saul of Tarsus because of his past and because of the things that he did. But what does this tell us? They're struggling with faith. Because the Bible says that love never fails. And if they could extend love to Saul of Tarsus, maybe, just maybe, they would realize that what he's saying, what happened to him is legitimate. But these walls that they're bringing up is preventing them from entering into this relationship with him, luckily. Luckily, there's a man by the name of Barnabas who's going to basically open this door for Saul of Tarsus to enter into relationship with the other apostles. It says... Verse 27, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. The disciples didn't believe, but Barnabas believed. Why? Because love believes all things. Love believes that even the person that seems the worst, the last person that you would ever think would come to the Lord, love believes that God could get a hold of them too. Love believes that God can do a transforming work in that person's life, that he can radically change them, that they truly can become a new creation, very different than the creation they were before. But it takes love believing these things. This is the type of love that Barnabas practiced. And I just wonder if Saul of Tarsus was thinking about this as one of the examples, right? When he wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 13, love suffers long and is kind, love does not envy, love does not parade itself, it is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, uh, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things love believes all things now obviously confident that Saul was thinking about how how Jesus loved him even though he was a persecutor even though he was the chief sinner even though he did did all these horrific things to the Lord and his people nevertheless it was Jesus using Barnabas to open his arms and open this door so that the apostles would recognize that his testimony is legitimate Imagine if Barnabas wasn't there. 
Imagine if Barnabas wasn't there and he wasn't being the son of encouragement. He didn't bring Saul of Tarsus in. We might not get the same Apostle Paul. We might not have all the epistles that we have today. What's the point? Sometimes it just takes one person to believe in somebody else. Sometimes it just takes one person to encourage an individual. Even when the whole world doesn't believe in you, that one person believing in you can be the very difference between making you or breaking you. See, Saul of Tarsus, because he had a faithful friend that believed in him, that gave him the encouragement he needed to share the what had happened to him in his life with the apostles. And we see from that point forward, Saul never looks back. But look what he says to him when he gets this audience with the apostles. And he declared, speaking of Saul, to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. Saul of Tarsus basically says this. You want to know how, uh, how uh, my testimony is legitimate? I've seen Jesus. I literally saw him. He came to me. He spoke to me. And I'm telling people about Jesus. This too is evidence of someone actually walking with Jesus. I'm seeing God work in my life. Now, you know, we probably won't have the experience that Saul of Tarsus had on the road to Damascus. But there should be a reality as believers that we're seeing God at work in our life, that this isn't just a religion thing that we come on Sundays and, you know, kind of go through the motions, but we see Him doing stuff. Maybe it's prayers answered. Maybe it's blessings received. Maybe it's discipline received. But we should see God working in our life, but that's not it. Say, He spoke to me. Jesus spoke to me. Jesus said in John chapter 10, My sheep know my voice. And follow me. My sheep know my voice. Meaning if we're truly the Lord's sheep, we should be hearing from Jesus. Again, maybe not audibly the way that Saul did, but God, he doesn't just speak audibly. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, it says God speaks in various ways. He speaks in many different ways. He'll speak through circumstances. He'll speak through prayer. He'll speak through worship. He'll speak through friends. He's even spoken through donkeys before. He can speak in so many different ways, but we got to incline our ear to hear how God wants to speak to us. This too is evidence that we're truly walking with Jesus. And lastly, he says, I preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. That's evidence too. I'm sharing about Jesus. So we see him, we hear him, and we tell about him. This is evidence that we're actually walking with the Lord. This is what Paul used as his argument. This is why you should know that I'm legitimately saved and love Jesus. Acts chapter 9, verse 28. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. So this is Saul's first trip to Jerusalem as a disciple. Okay, he fills us in with some of the details. Again, in Galatians chapter 1, you could write it down. I'll just paraphrase it. Galatians chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. It says that uh, after those three years, um, he went back to Damascus and then he went to Jerusalem for 15 days. Okay, Uh, but it says he only saw Peter and James. That's the only people that he got an audience with. He didn't see all the apostles. He saw two apostles. So this is the time frame that is being referred to here by Luke. Saul's first opportunity to engage with some of the apostles at Jerusalem. And it says in verse 29, and he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. 
Okay, remember, we got two groups of Jews, basically. You got the traditional Jews that are really about, you know, following the Mishnah and the Talmud and the Tanakh, all of that stuff. And then you got these Hellenistic Jews that were basically influenced by the Greek culture. Through Alexander the Great, he took over the known world. Rome took over after that, but there was a lot of Greek culture that infiltrated Jewish tradition. So these were the Hellenists. They're Jewish people as well. So not only do we have, we saw a few verses ago, the traditional Jews persecuting or plotting to kill Saul of Tarsus, but the other group, the Hellenists, is basically wherever Saul of Tarsus goes, people are trying to kill him. Literally, people are trying to kill him everywhere he goes as he preaches in the name of Jesus. This is still true in many countries. There are still many countries in this world that when you choose to open your mouth and talk about Jesus, you're risking your life. Your life is on the line. I have friends in some of these countries right now. And I get scared sometimes. You know, I trust the Lord that He's gonna, He's gonna get them through it. And if they end up getting martyred, I think that they're ready or they wouldn't be out there. But there's a reality that certain countries in this world, there's not the freedom to speak up about Jesus. You're risking your life for it. We're blessed in this world have something called freedom of speech, right? We have freedom of speech as Christians. We don't understand how big of a gift that is. Now, sadly, I wish certain people didn't use their freedom of speech as much, right? We don't want to hear what everybody has to say. But the Lord, he gives us freedom of speech and we're in this country for specific purposes and we get a chance to be a mouthpiece unlike any other country. Communication, speech, views, they're invited. And yes, they're frowned upon too. But at least we're able to speak up. Do we realize the gift that we have? That that we can go to the coffee store, coffee shop, the grocery store, whatever the case may be, and tell someone about Jesus and not have to like look over our shoulder and worry about someone knifing us in the back or arresting us? That's a huge freedom. But how are we using that freedom? See, Saul didn't have the great fortune that we do. Yeah, he freely preached boldly about Jesus, but almost every time it almost nearly cost him his life. In Acts chapter 9, verse 30, when the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. Okay, Tarsus is where Saul is from. Saul of Tarsus. So basically like, bro, every time you open your mouth, we're getting these different groups trying to kill you, so we're going to send you home for a while. I don't believe this was done in fear. I believe the disciples were being wise. Saul's getting too much attention right now, and it's bringing the rest of the church too much attention. So we're going to send him back home. Now, Saul, when we do the math, he was in Tarsus for about 8 to 12 years. Okay, 8 to 12 years, he went back home. He might have been doing like some small time ministry in Tarsus, sharing the gospel with people. We see that character quality uh, in Saul, even in this text. But we don't really know what he did in Tarsus. But we know that God, God was using that time in Tarsus to mold and shape his man, to equip his apostle to become the apostle that impacted so many people for ages to come. We also see this. Saul... At this point, he's sharing the gospel specifically with Jews, the traditional Jews and the Hellenist Jews. But Paul's ministry wasn't primarily to the Jews. 
Paul's ministry was to the Gentiles. Peter's ministry was primarily to the Jews. It's Romans chapter 15. In Romans chapter 15, verse 16, says that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus and the things which pertain to God. For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient. Yeah, Saul had encounters with Jews, especially in synagogues, but not just in synagogues. But God wasn't calling him primarily to the Jew. He was calling him to the Gentile, which is really weird. It's kind of backwards. Why? Because we see in Philippians chapter 3 that Saul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Like, he knew the law better than any of the other apostles. It would make sense that God would use the Pharisee to get across to the Pharisees, but that's not what he did. He used uneducated, untrained Peter to get across to the religious nuts. And he used Saul of Tarsus to get the message across to the Gentiles. Now, you'll hear me refer to Saul as Saul and Paul, right? Now, some have taught this, and I've heard like even Calvary Chapel pastors teach this, um, that God changed Saul's name to Paul, okay? But that's not actually what the text says. Let me show you. If you flip over a couple pages, the first time that Saul is called Paul is Acts chapter 13, verse 9. It says, Then Saul, who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. He says, He's also called Saul. Uh, sorry, also called Paul. Now, traditionally in that culture, you often had two names. Saul was um, was Saul's Hebrew name, right, back from King Saul. And Paul was his Greek name because he grew up in a Greek culture. Nowhere in the text does it say that God changed Saul's name to Paul. Luke tells us he was also called Paul. Not that God changed it. It would make sense if Paul is called to the Gentiles that he would use his Greek name and start going by Paul so that he could be all things to all men as he tells us later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. So Paul's ministry, as we'll see it take off in a few chapters, you remember Jesus gives us the outline in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, right? He says, okay, here's how the gospel is going to go out. You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. It's going to first go to Jerusalem, okay, city of Jerusalem, Judea, who is, uh, which is that southern region of Israel, Samaria, which is the middle region of Israel, and then to the ends of the earth. Paul the Apostle, his ministry was to the ends of the earth. We see him. That's why he becomes a missionary and he just goes as far as he can preaching the gospel and getting it out there as much as possible. He continued to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth until he was beheaded. In Acts chapter 9, verse 31 Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Okay, so we see a bunch of churches getting planted. Where are they? It says Judea, that southern region. That's where Jerusalem is. It says Samaria, that's the middle region. I probably should have showed you a map. And then Galilee, that's that northern region where Jesus focused a lot of time. So Israel is getting the gospel. Okay, we're going to see the gospel later on uh, 
go to the ends of the earth and, and, and even go outside of Israel. But what's significant as well here is that we see these words that are communicated in describing these churches and why they're growing. It says they had peace, were edified, walking in the fear of the Lord, and comfort of the Holy Spirit. They multiplied. Peace. Yeah. It's the fruit of the Spirit, right? Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. There should be peace in our life. What kind of peace? The peace that surpasses all knowledge and understanding. Literally a supernatural peace. That's the peace that God gives us. There should be peace. But not only peace. It says they were edified. What does that mean? To be built up. To be encouraged. They were encouraging one another. They were going through rough times, getting persecuted for their faith, but they took the time to lift each other up, to be there for one another. There should be encouragement in the church. Not only that, it says they were walking in the fear of the Lord. Does this mean like, I need to walk on eggshells around Jesus? No, what it actually means is like, I have a reverence for God and I recognize that he's called me to live a standard. He said, be holy for I am holy. And I know I'm unholy. I need the blood of the lamb to impart that righteousness and that holiness to me. But there's a reality that when I go throughout my day, there's a recognition that God's there and his presence is there and I'm doing my best to try to live for him. And yeah, I fall short quite a bit, but there's a fear of the Lord. I'm attempting, putting my whole heart into trying to be obedience to what, obedient to what God's calling me to do. Not only that, they said there, there's a comfort of the Holy Spirit. Comfort of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, Jesus, he describes the Spirit as the Comforter. Later on, Paul will say in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our tribulations. Think about the tribulations the early church is going through. Literally, their family members getting dragged out of the houses and imprisoned, and they got peace. They're edified, they're encouraged. They're walking in the fear of the Lord, not the fear of man. And they got comfort of the Holy Spirit. Like, that's crazy. When you look what they're walking through, this was only possible, obviously, by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. But we also see, as they were walking this walk, they were multiplied. They were growing. We see that throughout the church. They're growing. The church should keep growing. It shouldn't stop growing. They're multiplied in numbers, but they're also growing in character. Everything's changing. Everything's growing. It says in Acts chapter 9, Verse 32, now it came to pass as Peter went through all parts of the country that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. So Peter is basically a traveling preacher right now, okay? He's he's going about, he's holding the churches accountable, right? He doesn't want them to get off the doctrine of the gospel, the one gospel. He doesn't want them hearing a different gospel because there's a lot of false teachers in the church right now. But he's also encouraging, he's building up, he's teaching. Uh, we'll see him healing some people. So he's traveling. He's going around trying to help as many people as he can. So he goes to this place called Lydda, which is uh, about 35 miles outside of Jerusalem. Now, Peter likely didn't have a donkey or something to, to ride long distances with. Why do I say that? Well, remember in Acts chapter 3, he didn't have any gold or silver to give that poor guy. You know, probably can't afford a donkey. We don't know. But more than likely, he's walking on foot, traveling these, these lengthy distances. Why? Because the Lord was asking him to it. And there were, there were uh, asking him to do it. And there were specific strategic people that he wanted 
Peter to meet and heal and encounter and engage with. But guess what? It took Peter traveling. It it took Peter going through a little pain. His feet probably hurt. It took a little suffering for Peter to do what God was calling him to do. That's part of our Christian walk. There's seasons that are painful. There's sometimes when God calls us to do something that we think is impossible. If I ask you to walk 35 miles... Pretend I'm God, okay? I'm not. If I ask you to walk 35 miles because there was uh, a special someone that I wanted you to meet, would you do it? Just walk. Has anyone walked 35 miles one time? It's rough. I know there's some people here that have. Uh, one time in a 24-hour period, I traveled 38 miles. I ran, I ran 29 miles, and I walked nine in a 24-hour period. And guess what? It hurts. I went through suffering. Like, I, I literally, I couldn't run. My knees were so messed up, it took me two months to be able to run again. It was absolutely brutal. brutal. But that's the reality, that that's part of the calling sometimes. Sometimes it's brutal. Sometimes it, it's tough. Sometimes it takes work and suffering. Peter, he was willing to go through this 35 miles to meet this man. Look, Let's look at the man. In verse 33, There he found a certain man named Aeneas who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. So we see this man, Aeneas, is paralyzed. He's been in his bed for eight years. See, Peter, he wasn't just waiting in Jerusalem for something to happen. He got moving. He traveled to this place so that he could have this encounter with this man. And Jesus brought him all this way. Maybe it was for more people. We'll see some other people that he encountered. But maybe it was just for the one man. And sometimes the Lord calls us to do some pretty extreme things just for one individual. Just one. Why? Because he leaves the 99 to get the one. That's who he is and he's the way. He calls us to walk that same way that we'd be willing to step out of our comfort zone, go through a little pain, to seek out that one individual that's going through it. And this guy was going through it, bedridden eight days. Imagine that. I know some of us have uh, friends and family members that they've been in those situations where they haven't been able to get out of bed for, for eight, 10, 20 years. But imagine you going through that if you haven't. Dude, if I'm sick for like three or four days and I can't get out of bed, I am miserable. Like I am, I think the world's going to end. I hate being stuck in bed, whether it's an injury or a sickness or whatever. I go nuts. Literally, I go insane. I like to move. I like to be active. I like to work out. And something happens to my brain when I'm stuck in a bed for long periods of time. It drives me nuts. Imagine eight years. This guy's going through this for eight years, paralyzed. Can't do the things that he loves to do. Stuck in bed all day, every day. This man was suffering. We see Luke describes this man as being paralyzed. And this paralysis is a picture of our state in sin before Jesus gets a hold of us. We're crippled literally in sin. We're paralyzed in sin. The Bible says in Romans chapter 6, verse 16, Romans 6, 16, that we're slaves to sin before Jesus comes. Literally, we, we got chains on our hands. We got chains on our feet. We're stuck, bedridden, not able to see the light of the world, not able to experience the life that God wanted for us. We're paralyzed. We're stuck in sin. That's exactly how this man was. Yes, he was physically paralyzed. But there are so many 
that are worse off by being spiritually paralyzed. So Peter, he has this encounter with this guy. Now, um, Peter's going to perform a couple miracles in this chapter, and we'll see even in the next chapter, there's uh, direct parallels between what Jesus did and said and what Peter's doing. It's actually really cool. We'll briefly look at it this week and next week. But this uh, paralyzed man... Uh, the story is somewhat similar to the paralytic that Jesus healed in Mark chapter 2, uh, verses 2 to 12. If you remember, there was a house Jesus was ministering in, and everybody was trying to fill the house. It was packed. It was crowded. And then these four guys, they take their buddy who's paralyzed, and they actually climb through the top of the roof and let this guy down. And Jesus ends up healing the guy, not for his faith, but for their faith. There's probably a lot of this stuff coming up in Peter's mind as he's performing some of the same miracles that Jesus performed. Let's look at the miracle. It's verse 34. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Arise. And then he rose immediately. Peter didn't say in the name of Peter, <laughs> in the name of Simon Peter, you're healed. No, Peter knew it wasn't about him at all. He knew the only way this guy was going to be healed is by the power of Jesus. Sometimes you get these healing ministries and different people promoting themselves and the spiritual gifts that they have. But spiritual gifts are just that. They're gifts from God. They're really God's. Yeah, he'll use you to manifest some of those gifts. But the only way this man was able to be healed is by the name of Jesus Christ. It was Jesus that healed this man. But this is also so cool because this guy is healed. Paralyzed for eight years. What a relief, right? Peter got to be a part of this miracle. Why? Because he was doing what God asked him to do. He was in the right place at the right time, walking in the will of God. And he got to see the miracle. We see in John chapter 2. When Jesus did his first miracle, he turned the water into wine. I don't know if you've caught this before, but guess what? The only people that recognized Jesus did a miracle were the servants. It was the people that filled the water pots. The rest of the wedding party, they didn't know that Jesus did a miracle. He didn't make it known why that. They were like, oh, well, we get, we're getting the better wine later on when traditionally you drank the better wine and you finished off with the bad wine. When those people at that wedding ran out of wine, it was the servants that got to see the miracle. What's the point? When we're serving Jesus, when we're walking with Jesus, when we're where Jesus wants us to be, we'll get to see miracles. That's exactly what Peter does because he's in the right spot, in the right place, doing what the Lord had asked him to do. And he gets to be a part of this miracle. And Peter, he says to this man, arise, arise and make your bed. The miracle wasn't that the guy made his bed, okay? That, that wasn't the miracle. I know some of you are like, man, it would be a miracle if my child made their bed, right? On a regular basis without me telling them. <laughs> that's not the miraculous thing that's going on here. Um, that making your bed is likely he had like some type of, um, I forget, some type of pad that he's laying on and he rolled it up and put it away. Put it away, you don't need it anymore. Is basically what Peter's saying. You don't need to lay in bed anymore. You can get up, you can arise, you can walk in the newness of life because Jesus has healed you. And it says, this man, he rose immediately immediately, not delayed. It didn't say days went by, months went by. Right off the bat, the man arose. Imagine that. You're bedridden for eight years. All of a sudden, this guy comes into your house, heals you in the name of Jesus, and now you can live life. Now you're free, but free to do what? 
See, Jesus was healing this man to live for him. He was freeing him of his paralysis so that he could experience freedom in Christ. There's a story about Jesus having this encounter with 10 lepers and he heals them all, right? It says nine of them walked away, just went about their business. One of them came back. We don't know what happens with this Aeneas, Aeneas guy, but there's a reality that the Lord heals us not so that just so that we can experience healing, but so that we know who he is. This man has an opportunity to live for Jesus now. In Acts chapter 9, verse 35, So all who dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. You see that? That was one of the main reasons he did the miracle. Why? So that many would turn to the Lord. All these people saw this miracle that was performed for this paralytic and they believed in Jesus. They recognized that the physical healing was meant to point to a spiritual healing. So they accepted the Lord. Acts chapter 9, verse 36. At Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. When they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. So Joppa was close to to, to Lydda. Okay, this isn't far away. Peter's going to go here. But we see this woman, Tabitha, also named Dorcas. Uh, it's the same word. She's a disciple. And it says she's full of good works and good deeds. Walking in them, not just thinking about them. Like she's really living for Jesus. And Jesus lets her get sick and die. Why? Why does the Lord allow people that are like just saints, really following them, doing amazing things for Jesus, and he lets them get sick, and he lets them die? He does it for his glory. And sometimes we don't understand why he's doing it. In this text, luckily we will for this specific purpose. But it gets difficult to, uh, for us to understand, God, these people that are walking with you, living for you, you let them get sick and die. Sometimes he'll reveal that truth to us in this life where we can understand why he allowed that to happen. And other times we might have to wait until we meet him face to face. So this faithful servant of the Lord, she ends up dying. We see her being sick and being dead is actually a picture of our spiritual state again before we came came to Christ. Not only um, were we paralyzed and handcuffed in sin, the Bible likens... um, sin to a sickness. It is a sickness. It's a disease. It gets worse and worse over time. It gets progressively worse. He says, when sin is full grown, meaning it grows, it brings forth death. It doesn't just stay the way that it is. It either gets worse or it gets better. And it only gets better if it gets the proper treatment. What is that? The great physician, the gospel, the truth of God's word. This is the only way to be healed from the sickness of sin and the death that sin brings. In Acts chapter 9, verse 38, almost there. And they laid her in an upper room, and since Lydda was near Joppa, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. Then Peter arose and went with them. When he had come, they brought him to the upper room, and all the widows stood by him weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. 
So they go to get Peter. Like, I can only imagine what this conversation is like. Hey, Pete, uh, our friend died. Can you do something about it? Like, she just died, and we love this lady. She's a great lady, great for the community. Will you help her somehow, somewhere? Like, I have no idea. Maybe God gave them a gift of faith or knowledge that they realized that they were going to be, that Peter was going to be able to hear. We don't really know. That had to be somewhat of an awkward conversation. Imagine someone coming to you. Hey, our friend died. Can you, can you step in and do something about it? It's like, uh, maybe, I don't know. Peter, he is though, and he arises, he goes. He's likely thinking about all the different times that Jesus brought people back to life, right? We remember the widow Nain's son in Luke chapter 7. We remember Lazarus in John chapter 11. Jesus had the ability to literally bring dead people back to life. Peter's probably thinking, well, I've done these other things. Maybe I can, I can do this thing too. He had enough faith to move forward. He arose and he went. What if he would have just doubted, said, I don't think I can do that. You know, I can heal some people but by the name of Jesus, but I can't bring a dead person back to life. We never know what would have happened. But if we want to see the dead be brought back to life, then we got to get up. <laughs> we got to do something. We got to engage in those conversations. We got to tell people about Jesus. We got to get out of our comfort zone and be open to the opportunities that God wants for us. If Peter doesn't arise, then Tabitha doesn't arise. But because Peter rose, Tabitha will rise as well. It's Acts chapter 9, verse 40. <clears throat> but Peter put them all out and knelt down and prayed and turning the body to the body. He said, Tabitha arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. Then he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it came, became known throughout all Joppa and many believed on the Lord. We see this healing is very similar um, to a healing that happens back in Mark chapter 5. This guy Jairus, uh, his daughter is sick. She dies. Jesus actually, he says she's sleeping. He brings her back to life. He wakes her up. There's a lot of similarities. And what Jesus says to this girl is he says, um, Talitha kumi, which means little girl arise. And when you look at the original language here, that's basically the same thing that Peter is saying. He says, Tabitha kumi or Tabitha arise. So we see Peter doing the same miracles that Jesus was doing. He's speaking the same words that Jesus was speaking. He's truly walking in the way of the Lord and the Lord is empowering him to do some magnificent things. So this woman, it says she sat up she opened her eyes and he presented her alive. See, Christ, he doesn't just make sick people well, he makes dead people alive. This is point number four. Jesus transforms the dead to life. Jesus transforms the dead to life. Now, this woman was already saved, but this picture of her being raised to life is a picture of what Jesus wants to do in every single person's life says this in Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, says, And you, personalize this, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, 
heir. The spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. It literally says you were dead in your trespasses and sins and God made you alive. He doesn't just want to heal people. He literally wants to bring the dead to life. The Bible says we were dead in our sins. We might not have realized it, but our life meant nothing until we came to Jesus. We're just making the world a lot worse and not better. We were dead people walking. Jesus says, no, no, no. I'm going to come into your life. I'm going to give you life. I'm going to give you reason. I'm going to give you purpose. I want you to understand what this life is really all about. I was listening to this thing talking about suicide rates uh, from 2006 to 2016. Um, and suicide rates among young adults have tripled based on this study. They've tripled. Why do you think that happens? Well, when a society pushes Jesus out of the society, when public universities don't want anything to do with Jesus, when people start teaching lies that there is no meaning, there is no purpose, you're just here by chance. What's the logical outcome? Okay, if life doesn't mean anything, then I might as well off myself. That's what I believe. That's what I actually believe. I remember coming to a conclusion with some of the things I was being taught. I was like, this life means nothing. This life means absolutely nothing. It's completely meaningless. Jesus says it does mean something. It means something if you're connected to me. I am the light and the life of the world. You want to understand the purpose of this life? Let's get together. Let's build a relationship. Let's grow. So many people are dying prematurely because they don't recognize the life-giving power of the gospel. So Peter, he brings this woman to life. And lastly, in Acts chapter 9, verse 43, so it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon a tanner. Okay? You don't know my name's Tanner. Okay? So <laughs> it was funny. The first time I heard this, uh, I was with my brother-in-law. Um, first time I ever heard this chapter taught. So by Pastor Bob. And uh, he said, what do tanners do for a living? And I was in Calvary House, right? So I'm not making any money. I'm just there. I don't know what's going to happen in the future. Like none of that stuff. And Matt looks at me and he goes, yeah, what do tanners do for a living? Like, what are you doing with your life? Like, you're not even, you don't have a career or anything. It was pretty funny. But what do tanners do for a living? Uh, they tan hides. They work with dead animals in their skin. They make leather and different things like that. Well, this is a, a job that not many people wanted. Why? Because if you touch dead animals, you were ceremonially unclean. And you couldn't come into the synagogue to, to worship. You couldn't come into the temple to worship. You couldn't have encounters with specific, specific people if you were unclean. So this is a brutal job. So brutal, in fact, they weren't even allowed to live directly in the city. They had to live at least 75 feet out of the city so they didn't come in contact with people very often. Not only that, being a tanner was so bad that women, if they went to marry a guy and later found out that they were a tanner, they would, they didn't have to follow through with the wedding. They could annul the marriage. 
this is how brutal it was to be a tanner. I'm telling you, it's hard to be a tanner. It's very, it's, it's very hard. <laughs> so Simon, he goes and stays with this tanner, this guy that's working with dead animals. We've seen Simon in the past struggle with legalism, but what we see here is the Spirit's transforming his legalistic ways. This is the fifth and final point, real quick point. Transformation comes from the Spirit, not the law. Transformation comes from the Spirit, not the law. Apart from the Holy Spirit, I guarantee you, Simon wouldn't be caught dead at a tanner's house. But now, because the Lord is doing this work in his life, He stays with this guy, not just a day to visit him, like he's living with this guy among dead animals. The Spirit is doing a radical work in his life. Peter's realizing something, that it's not just by keeping all these laws and to-do lists and all these different things. It's about the Spirit of God working on my heart and working in and through me. Paul goes on to say in Galatians chapter 3, this church struggling with legalism. We'll get to this in a couple months. This church... um, keeps going back to the old way of doing things, falling back into tradition, and they're getting away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And 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 Paul, he lays it on him. Look what he says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. He says, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? We can fall into this as believers. We can turn our relationship with Jesus into a religion, into just a list of do's and don'ts. Okay? I read my Bible today. Devotions are crossed off. I prayed today. My prayer is, I, I led my family in a devo. That's, that's good. I, I fasted this meal. I did this. I did that. And those things are great if we're doing it for the right reason. But those things don't change us. They're avenues for us to get close to Jesus. And Jesus is the one that changes us. We are transformed by the Spirit of God, not our to-do list. Now, I'm not saying to-do lists are bad. I have plenty of to-do lists, but it comes down to why am I doing the things that I put on my to-do list? Am I doing these things to grow closer to Jesus? Or am I just trying to make myself feel better as a Christian that's knocking these things out? All of those things are avenues to grow closer in our relationship with the Lord. Now, as we grow in that relationship with Jesus, He continues to do that work in us. He works in us, and we work out what He works in. Wow, this thing changed in my life. I want to make some changes in my life. This changed in my heart. I want to change some of my behaviors. See, the Lord got a hold of Simon's heart, changing him radically. His transformation just didn't happen when he was redeemed in John chapter 21. It didn't just happen in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit came upon him. Yeah, he transformed. He's a different man, but he's still being transformed. Yeah, when we accept Jesus, there's an initial transformation that takes place, but there's also a reality that we're works in progress and we're constantly supposed to be progressing. We're constantly supposed to look more and more like Jesus. He's transforming us into the image of Jesus Christ, but sometimes we can look at our past transformation. Be content in it. Okay, that was good enough. God changed me back then. I don't really need much work anymore. Like, I'm good. I'm changed enough. There's no such thing as being changed enough. God wants to completely change us. 
but we got to want it too. We got to invite the transformation. Yeah, God, I'm not, I, I don't want to get apathetic in my growth. I recognize there's things still in me that need to change. Help me change those things. Work those things out in my heart. I invite the transformation. We get stuck in patterns where we don't like change. But the Bible calls us to a lifestyle of change. The rest of our lives should constantly be changing internally and externally. The Lord wants this for us, but we have to want it for ourselves. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word in this text and just such a, a, a powerful thing um, that you did through Saul of Tarsus and through Peter and heal, healing all those people and, and not just the external, the internal, <laughs> changing Peter to, to get rid of some of his legalism, God. And we just ask that you would transform us, Lord, that we wouldn't get apathetic in our transformation. We wouldn't just accept uh, the work that you've already done in our life, but we would recognize and believe that you want to complete the work. God, so help us do our parts. Give us hearts to invite change, to invite transformation, that we can continue to grow, to become more like you. In Jesus' name, amen.